Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me for this episode because we're speaking with Dave Lane about open source software, but we also talk about a bunch of other topics as well. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Dave. Software is the same, if you think about it. Why would you build a computer system that requires you to install antivirus on it? It's like somebody building a car that requires you to buy a contract to have somebody follow you around with a, a, a wrench to and, and, and spare lug nuts to put the wheels back on the car when they accidentally fall off periodically, which mm-hmm. they always do. Mm-hmm. When the motivations for building the software um, diverge from the interests of the people using the software, mm-hmm. and that typically, typically software or, well, typically um, when a corporation is young, it's trying to break into a marketplace. And the way that it does that is by aligning itself with the interests of its customers. Mm-hmm. The problem is that once a corporation becomes mature, and typically all corporations, despite the fact that they always talk about um, being market market capitalists and you know loving the free market, actually their whole purpose in existence is to create a monopoly, which is exactly the opposite of that. That's a complete distortion of the market. And um, as soon as software achieves a market dominance, it's... Um, incentives become diametrically opposed to those of its customers. Mm. And it actually has to spend all of its time working out how to look like it's being kind to its customers while at the same time, for example, making them think that the software they currently have of theirs is bad and that they should upgrade to the next version because it's going to be better. Mm. And the thing that amazes me is that people keep on doing it, Mm. that they don't see that they're (laughs) completely being exploited like a cow being milked. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, I know you're going to enjoy this interview because we ended up talking about a number of different topics as well as that subject of open source software. And don't forget, this is one of dozens of other interviews. So if you enjoy this, you might want to check out some of those earlier ones as well. Now, here's the conversation with Dave. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Dave Lane, who's the open source technologist for the Open Education Resource Foundation. Thank you for joining me today. Nice to be here, Stephen. Um, What we do on this show is talk about people's lives and where they're from and what they're doing now. And in order to do that, it's good to go right back to the beginning. So I'm wondering if we could start, um, because I know we're going to talk a lot about open source software and your interest in that and and what it actually is. And I'm really keen to dive deep there. But if we could go right back to the beginning and just tell us a bit about where you're from. Sure. So I come originally from the east coast of the U.S., from uh, a place called Montclair, New Jersey, um, where I was born and raised. And um, my, I grew up with a, a father who spent most of his time traveling internationally, um, who's a multilinguist, is an engineering engineer by training, but multilinguist. And my mother's originally German and um, uh, came to the U.S. just before I was born. Mm. And uh, so I grew up... Um, uh, speaking a couple of languages and uh, in a very diverse environment, um, but a fairly rough environment as well. And um, attended public schools, ended up going to university uh, near Philadelphia on the East Coast as well, doing a degree in physics. Um, and uh, deciding then after having done that and having had an absolute blast uh, at university or for college, as they call it, or, uh, in, in the U.S., um, I decided to move west, and I ended up um, being lucky enough to have a position as a research scientist, a research fellow, uh, or sorry, a research assistant at um, the University of Washington in Seattle, where I did a master's degree mm-hmm. in uh, mechanical engineering, which actually, oddly enough, didn't really involve all that much mechanical engineering. I, I f- focused on design, um, something called photogrammetry, and then something else called image processing, which mm-hmm. uh, may be more familiar to people. So, so we'll come back to that in a minute. I'm just curious about your parents, mm, <laughs> because mm. you mentioned a multilingual father. Mm. Where had that come from? Did he? Um, uh, what? He just picks up languages uh, really? like a sponge. My dad speaks, I think, six or seven languages fluently. Wow! And uh, um, was that something he realized growing up that he was just absorbing it or something? Or how I'm, did it? I'm not entirely sure. He, I think, he was fluent in French as a result of his high school study, mm-hmm. but that was really the only language that he spoke. Um, but he was, my family's Quaker, 
mm-hmm. uh, and he was a conscientious objector during the Korean War, and his alternative service involved him as a 18 or 19 year old um, going to um, uh, I guess he's a bit older than that, but anyway, um, early 20s. Mm-hmm. He went ended up going to Vienna uh, to do his alternative service which was the condition for being a conscientious objector. And he spent three years helping Hungarian refugees in Vienna who were escaping from the Soviets um, into Vienna um, from Hungary. And he picked up German and Hungarian while he was there. Hmm. Um, He also spent a year living in Mexico City doing work, and he picked up fluent Spanish. Um, He then worked as a... um, sales manager, international sales manager for a company uh, which involved him going all around um, Central and South America, Africa, and uh, he picked up um, Portuguese, and um, he also, along the way, picked up Dutch and Swedish. Wow. <laughs> and, he, and he studied Russian in university as well, so he was, he was passable in Russian, or he is passable in Russian still. So if I go on a world trip, he's the mm. guy I need, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think his Italian is pretty poor, but the rest of it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. You could pretty All right. Much... Well, I'll give him a pass, because he can do the others. <laughs> yeah. The irony, of course, is that he spent most of his, the, the, the majority of his working life spent was spent mostly in the Asia-Pacific region, where he didn't speak any of the languages. So he was oh, the first I person I knew who had visited mainland China, for example. Right. Um, and he spent a lot of time, uh, as it happens, in Australia and New Zealand before I even was aware that they were yeah. a country, wow. <laughs> or countries, rather. Yeah. yeah. So growing up, you've got this environment of multiple languages and mm. cultures and things. Mm-hmm. Um, what, were you aware that that was different from other I guess other kids or well, or not. Where I grew up, I, I um, oddly enough, it was pretty common because most of the people around me were immigrants. Right. Um, you know, so I grew up in areas that were there were a lot of Italians, there were a lot of African Americans, there were a lot of well, people from, with African heritage. There mm-hmm. were people um, from all all different parts of the world. Um, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood just outside of New York City, and there were a lot of diplomatic um, people with diplomatic um, ties, and so mm-hmm. I grew up in a in a very diverse environment. Definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And what do you think that that did for you? I guess shaping who you who you are, who you become. Uh, well, I guess I I, I realized that um, people of all different types have different things to contribute and different. And there there was such a broad range of types that I guess I've I've had the benefit of never um, never being in a in a place that was um, so hom- homogeneous that I I felt that. You know, I, I could succumb to <laughs> the kind of prejudices and stuff I've seen other people um, grow up with, I guess, because they've typically been in, in, in much less diverse uh, environments. Mm. So I guess that's that was a real benefit. Although I have to say there were certainly a lot of challenges to it as well. There were there were a lot of people who came with um, prejudices and, and biases as well. So I saw a fair bit of it mm. and in some cases experienced it. But I think I, it's fair to say that I was probably fairly privileged compared to a lot of people. So mm. I could see both sides of it, I guess, um, all around me. Mm. And it sounds like it was actually quite an international childhood in mm. some ways because your mother, mm. you said, was from Germany, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So you had influences from mm. multiple cultures. That's right. Yeah, we, we had a lot of um, a lot of my father's business contacts visited us in the U.S. as well. So so that was really quite um, uh, quite fascinating because yeah, we had at any given time there would be three or four different languages being spoken around the dinner table. My parents always used French as their back channel so that they could talk about us, right. my, my brother and me, without us knowing what they were saying. But uh, anyway, yeah, and then there were then there was whoever was visiting uh, um, for a, a meal um, whose language might be yet, yet different again. So yeah. right, yeah, quite a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I interviewed somebody um, now a couple months ago named Martin Large, and he's from a Quaker tradition. Ah, um, okay. He's in the UK, um, mm-hmm. based in the UK. But we were talking. I was talking with him about what influence that had had in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something growing up that? It must have played a big part. It sounds like if it if your father had been a conscientious objector. Yeah. Is that well, I, um, it's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm not at all religious. In mm. fact, I'm anything but. Mm. Um, but I do have a great admiration for the Quaker tradition, um, which, strictly speaking, isn't actually religious. Oddly enough, but mm. it has some very interesting philosophical and um, social principles associated with. It. So it is very pacifist. Uh, mm. And in fact, it was one of the only ways that you could be a a conscientious objector um, mm. legally in America was to be a Quaker. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is in my family, we always um, we always use the informal address to talk to each other. So I say, how is the father or dad mm. or pop? I, I call him pop mostly. Right. Or how is the mom? 
our mom in, in America. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we, we all speak to each other in plain speak. And it's, it was a kind of an unconscious thing. Like I know that I talk to my parents that way and to other people I use you. or right. and, and so in, in English, we've lost the informal address. Whereas, for example, in German, which my mother and father, of course, are, are fluent in, um, it was natural for them to use the informal address for, mm. f- to talk to each other and to talk to their family. So it kind of happened in our family. Um, although I have to say, um, because my wife isn't uh, a German speaker um, and doesn't have a Quaker background, we don't use it in my family, for right. better or worse. Yeah. Um, so my, my boys haven't experienced that. But um, yeah, yeah, that was a, an interesting thing I had to explain to all my friends when I was a kid. Right. What the heck are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> What's this thee and thy business? So you'd come home and you'd switch yeah. automatically because you were talking to yeah. you know, your parents? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just completely automatic. Yeah. Just like people who are multilingual, they don't have to really think about which language they're speaking. Mm. It's just kind of based on the context, it just happens. Right. Mm. So just to dive there, it, rather than saying, how are you, you would say, how is thee? How is, is thee, yeah. Right. yeah. Thou, for a lot of people think, you know, think um, thou is, is an alternative or diff- is different from thee and thy. Thou is just sort of a, uh, is actually kind of a, um, an even older, I think, tradition um, that is sort of flowery. And it, so we would say thee and thy instead of you and your. Hmm. Um, and we wouldn't use thou at all. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. How fascinating. So the, the Quakers originally, no the Quakers originally um, believed that um, you should speak to everyone as, a, as an equal. You should see everyone as an equal. And ah. that uh, the, the formal form of address used to be seen as what you used for your betters. And Quakers um, were seen as a nuisance in the UK where they originated um, because they refused to doff their cap to the people that claimed to be their betters or thought that they should be seen as their betters. And they were um, they were a bit of they've seen as a bit of a social nuisance because they they treated everyone equally and in fact they were the people for example behind the underground railroad to help the people escape slavery in, in America and so on mm. because of that they, they they immediately you know had that sense of egalitarianism all, all through their culture wow um, and um, that's amazing because that's a long time ago right like, yeah, yeah 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 they also started the mobile ambulance units in the, in the first world war um, mm. because they refused to, to bear arms but they also uh, had to participate, so they they um, they were the ones, for example, who uh, ensured that people of both sides that were fallen were, would be indiscriminately um, mm. helped by by the mobile ambulance units. And they also uh, the um, suffrage in America was won by a Quaker woman, Susan B. Anthony. So right. yeah, wow, it's a lot going for them. <laughs> yeah, well, they were they were fairly Pretty. influential for their small, relatively small numbers. Yeah, but they have a very strong, generally have a very strong social conscience. Yeah. Yeah, in my mind, it's always been sort of anti, or you know, peace. Mm, peace mm. has been the word that I would have associated mm. with it. I hadn't realized the sort of, you know, treating others equally as well, yeah. and the outworking of that in the actual spoken language mm. amongst each other. Yeah, so it's a it's a relatively obscure tradition even within Quakerism um, in right. America. There there would be very few people who would still do that. Mm. So we were a bit, I suppose, a bit unusual. But my my family has been Quaker for for many many generations on my father's side. Yeah. Yeah, oh, so it's fascinating. Deep, deeply ingrained. Well, see, this is what I love about this podcast because mm. <laughs> I can think we're going to talk about one thing and then we go <laughs> off on all these tangents. So I'm going to bring us back now because we've gotten up to um, talking about university and what you were studying there. Yeah, yeah. Can you just remind me, you did your master's in? Mechanical engineering, technically. So I did a mm-hmm. full engineering, mechanical engineering curriculum, but I, I specialized in design process. And, um, uh, and as it happens, I did... Um, I did subs. I did independent research. Uh, my thesis was was on a, a combination of fields that I guess loosely would come under the design area, but they specialized. They, they required me to spend a lot of time learning um, fields that were either electrical engineering, which is image processing, or civil engineering, which is photogrammetry. That's the science of using um, aerial images or images in general to construct three D. Uh, usually, it's it's um, overlapping images with very carefully calibrated cameras that you can use to mm-hmm. generate um, maps of, of, of real structures. So, mm-hmm. for example, all topographic maps that you use are generated originally right. via photogrammetry. I see. Um, yeah. so, so these days we'd look at a Google map or whatever with satellite images. It's kind mm-hmm. of piecing, mm-hmm. piecing, piecing it all well, together. Well, all of those maps were originally created via photogrammetry, although nowadays a lot of photogrammetry has been largely automated. And what I was involved in doing was, was some of that early automation. Hmm. So I, I um, yeah, my master's was in, uh, involved in um, what was called uh, 
low altitude photogrammetry where you have um, an unusual situation where we, I, I, was, I was actually funded by, by the Forest Service. Mm. And um, uh, you have situations where you want to, for example, get a map of the terrain uh, at a fairly low altitude. For example, say you want to build a road across and build a bridge across a, a, a river. You want to have a very accurate map of the bank on both sides so you can work mm. out how you have to construct the abutments to make sure that they are um, going to get bear the load of the bridge and so on mm. uh, or you have to actually even select the spot for the bridge and so you want a very accurate terrain, terrain map and um, so I was developing technologies uh, for hel- helicopter borne cameras I see. that would fly over over an area and they would be able to, to um, get very accurate uh, data models mm. for the and these terrain. are taking images rather mm. than video or is it a yeah bit of both, uh, well actually my my research involved um, we were using uh, something called a Hasselblad camera which is a very um, a very highly a very high precision camera in fact it's the same camera that was taken to the moon um, for their for their fo- uh, photography on the moon mm. because of the quality of the of the cameras but we um, had these cameras on steel a steel boom that was actually incidentally manufactured in a, in New Zealand originally which was my first connection to New Zealand mm. was this camera boom that got strapped underneath the helicopter and um, the cameras were mounted on either end of the cam- of the of this boom and the reason that they were mounted that way was to give them a separation of a n- very carefully calibrated distance that mm. could be used as ground truth essentially, mm. to work out the geometry of the, Im, the contents of the images. So you, mm. you'd use that knowledge to be able to get one of the variables that you needed to be able to get accurate ground measurements. I see. And the problem was you couldn't look through the viewfinder of the camera to know what the camera was seeing. So part of my research involved um, building a video camera system that you could view uh, a signal in the cab- cabin of the, of the helicopter and trip the trigger of the cameras, which went simultaneously on both sides, mm. based on what the camera, or the, the video camera, which was at the center of the boom, was seeing in its field of view. Ah. So we calibrated what the camera's field of view was relative to the video camera and so on. Yeah. 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 So oh, really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it was yeah. good good fun at yeah. the time. Well, it was stressful at the time as well. Was it? <laughs> it's pretty bad. It's pretty horrible. The smell of avgas, which is perpetual in, in these little helicopter, bell helicopters. And, right. then, and then the fact that you're swinging around looking at a tiny little, one of the early LCD screens back in the early 90s, one of the early LCD screens, you're looking down and it's swerving around right. these forestry, <laughs> high altitude forestry um, situations in a helicopter. It was, it was pretty um, Trying to take these photos nauseating. of the banks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there, was a, there was a bit of air sickness going on, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah. sure. I, yeah, My father um, is a marine biologist and he worked in Alaska for a mm-hmm. while. And he used to go in little airplanes and they would fly up the rivers. Mm-hmm. And then he would look down and they would count the salmon. Oh, wow. in the rivers yeah. but they wouldn't count one two three they were counting like five hundred thousand mm, mm. fifteen hundred you know like cool and it's kind of similar idea that from the air you can see you get different perspective mm. right so yeah. yeah and your mind can pick up new kind of pa- new kinds of patterns when you get familiar enough with them i guess you could you could count with yeah, high, co- you can high confidence you can estimate things yeah right? yeah that was cool. actually a project for university of washington oh really yeah this okay. is in the 60s but nice. yeah a little connection there yeah. Cool. Well, oh, okay. w- one of the things that, that was quite um, seminal for me about the, um, the work that I did at the University of Washington was that I was studying all this photogrammetric um, uh, research that had been done in the past because part of my job was to try to get a computer to automatically construct maps based on these stereo images. Hmm. And I had to learn in the process of doing all this work how to use something called a um, stereo plotter, which is the main tool of photogrammetry. Hmm. And in the old days, there used to be these huge, like, um, you know, multi-ton cast iron uh, pieces of equipment that that had a little seat and a little, a bunch of little dials, and and, um, they were all mechanical. uh, And basically... They were like a huge overhead projector with two slides that you could look at two different images on, and you had look through these oculars, mm. um, and you, you move one image relative to the other. Each, each image went to one of your eyes, mm. and you move them relative to each other until you got the stereoscopic effect that where it pops right. into 3D, which yes. you get like with those little Viewmaster things. Yes, yes. Uh, the Viewmaster toys. But the, they had to be, in order to achieve, to achieve um, accuracy, you had to minimize the vibration for these systems, which is why they were so heavy. Mm-hmm. And the O's used to be in the sub-basement of a municipal building somewhere, usually on huge rubber bushings 
that were designed to protect against, you know, when a truck went past outside, it would cause right. the building to, to vibrate. That would be enough to completely throw off your, your photogrammetric measurements. Mm -hmm. Because in photogrammetry, you can get a 1 to 10,000 accuracy level. So if your altitude for taking a photograph is 10,000 meters, you can get a 1 meter accuracy on the ground wow. in terms of your measurements. Yeah. So it's potentially very high accuracy. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had to learn how this process of photogrammetry and the calculations behind it uh, could be automated. And all of the research papers that I read, all of the um, kind of core science that had been done, was done by the U.S. Geological Survey uh, and published according to the U.S.'s policy of, of, of um public domain publishing for all government-funded scientific research. Oh. And so even after I... So I ended up moving to New Zealand to undertake, continue this research, working for one of the Crown Research Institutes, mm. what's now called Scion Research. Mm. used to be the Forest Research Institute. Um, they actually uh, invited me to come to New Zealand uh, as I completed my master's mm. um, and undertake similar research here. And I was able to use all of this scientific knowledge that had been made available and all of the algorithmic information and so on that had been made available by these scientists from the USGS in the 50s and 60s. Mm. And if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have been able to do any work mm. at all. Mm. And so um, that was really So you crucial. started because we're getting to the open source mm, thing. Mm. So that, was that your first introduction to it really? or No, no. Um, actually, my first introduction to it was um, as an undergraduate, I did a thesis as well. And I was doing some scientific research into... Um, uh, it was actually fluid dynamics, um, and it was my part of my physics degree looking at, it's kind of complicated to explain quickly, mm. but, um, yeah. os oscillations of a fluid in a container based on the symmetries of the container and, and the waves and so on that are formed by it. And, um, I had to, uh, provide in my thesis, a visualization of the plots that I was getting mm. and, the software that we had there at the, at the university didn't actually meet the requirements that I had. And so in those days, before the actual internet existed, I used something called Gopher to try to find, um, well, I just did a Gopher search one day because I was at a loss as to how I was going to visualize or you know present these plots properly in a form that would, that would fit into my thesis. And I actually found a piece of software by a group... Um, at the University of Illinois, uh, I think it was called the NC, uh, I can't, the National Supercomputing, NSC, I can't remember exactly the name of the organization. Mm. I don't think they exist anymore, but the same group actually created the first web browser called mm. Mosaic, and their team eventually started Netscape. But that group produced a bunch of software that they made available as open source, and it was some of the original open source software. And there was this visualization tool that they'd made that I, I was able to download one afternoon mm. at, on the university's network and install on the Mac that I was using to do my thesis. And I was able to do all of the plots and so on that I needed. And that was my first experience with open source software, that mm. I was able to actually do something really useful. Yeah, I um, saw the benefits right away. Huh? Right away, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't, I mean, the process to get the university to buy something for me to use and so on, that was a real big problem. Like yeah. That was a real um, huge process. And I would have had to go through some sort of a vetting process to check all of the possible you know, options and it would have had to have justifications and the cost of it probably would have come out of somebody's research budget and would have made them mm. surly. <laughs> yeah, sure. So yeah, it was, it was a win-win for everyone. Yeah. So you ended up in New Zealand, but just before we get there, yeah. um, what, what do they do now? The research that you were doing, you mm. know, about having the, the photos taken, like that was, I guess at that point, that was the best alternative, but has it progressed? It must've progressed hugely since then, has it? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> we see things like the, the Google car traveling around and taking photographs um, that, that allow you to do these wondrous things like Street View and so mm. on, and Google Earth being on right. everybody's, even on your cell phone probably, you know, but yeah. on everybody's computer. Um, a lot of the automated technologies have been greatly improved over the, over the time since I started working. A lot of it's been aided by the um, widespread availability of GPS to provide ground truth. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the days I was doing it, that was still um, very early days. And it was also um, the accuracy of it was hobbled by the U.S. military at the time. I don't know if you remember mm -hmm. that, but um, it was only it was many years after I did my work that the accuracy went up substantially. Right. Or increased. Yeah. yeah. Became far more accurate. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Oh, that's good. And it's fascinating as well. In our conversation, you said um, that, you know, you were looking for something. You looked at Gopher because it was pre-internet. Mm. Isn't it amazing to think like these days, it's just so, you know, like I got my mobile phone right here. Mm -hmm. I can use Google. I can find stuff. But that era, you know, like pre-1990s, mm -hmm. it was just a different world, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I explained uh, what microfiches were to somebody and a card catalog was to someone recently. Right. And how I did a research paper in high school uh, on the mafia, the La Cosa Nostra, as they're officially called in Sicily. Uh, and, I, and I had to um, do all of my research on, on microfiche, pulling out old newspaper articles because all the books in the library, which the card catalog was, said the library contained, um, you know, a dozen or so books about La Cosa Nostra. But when I went to, when I went to take them out, they, they had all been checked out and never returned. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I grew up in an area where the La Cosa Nostra, I actually grew up in the town next to where the, um, the Sopranos was meant to take place. So oh, yeah, it was okay. pretty much the heartland of all that wow. in America. <laughs> yeah. So they, they borrowed the books, but it never, uh, <laughs> never back. came back. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. The, 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 the fact that, you know, the, the misery, the remembering, the, the yeah. misery of, of looking through microfiches was uh, was something that I had to explain to the yeah. kids because they couldn't imagine it. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, like go to the library and, oh, we don't have the book right now, but we can request it from this other library mm, over here. Mm. Come back in whatever time frame, mm. you know, like, and I think our culture is so used to instant data, you know, yeah. like, um, that's right. But it hasn't always been that way. No. So what did you know about New Zealand um, before you came um, well, I didn't know very much, to be honest. I had a, I had a, a couple of postcards that my father had sent me um, from New Zealand, which were picture, you know, the standard pictures of you know, Fjordland and, right. and uh, things like that. And um, I can remember him saying, Davey, these should, these should come to New Zealand sometime. I think you'd really like it here. Mm. And I can remember this as a, as a high schooler growing, you know, that my dad sent these cards. And I see. that was kind of my only recollection or my only knowledge of New Zealand. Mm. So um, when I got, I got this offer to work in New Zealand for a year on a one-year contract, um, I just thought, well, the heck with it. It's either this or, or, you know, find some corporate ladder to try to start climbing in America. And I thought, well, I think there's a lot more to be learned and a lot more to be gained from having a look around the world a little bit and mm -hmm. going to the other end of it is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, had some appeal, at yeah. least in the short term. Yeah. So what year was that? Late 90s? 94. 94. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I've been here for a while. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> about five years into my one-year contract, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I knew very quickly after I arrived here that I, I wanted to stay. Yeah. What was it that caused it to be that quick? Um, I think I, I ended up uh, finding a group of Kiwis and expats. It was the, the postgraduates. I, I ended up, my first, my first um, working role was actually based at Lincoln University working for the Forest Research Institute in a small team. Right. Of only three or four, four of us, and and I was basically hanging out with the postgrads there, and they were an international bunch, a lot of Kiwis, but a lot of people from elsewhere as well. Mm. And I realized that I'd found a really cool group of people that I could hang out with, and I I was working full time. I was making by New Zealand standards pretty good money for a for a fr fresh graduate, mm -hmm. and yet I felt like I was on holiday every day. Right, and I felt <laughs> like well, doesn't really get any better than this right? yeah <laughs> so you're paying me to do this work and yeah. i'm able to go outside and enjoy yeah the life and <laughs> exactly yeah oh so, that's good yeah no I, I felt really fortunate to be here and um i was overjoyed when it was it turned out to be possible for me to emigrate yeah, yeah. now i'd love to switch tack a little bit sure. and and weave into this the open source and that type of thing because i think um having looked at your <coughs> website and read a little bit it was around that time that you were starting to think through these issues weren't you when you mm. were at the cri yeah um, definitely. can you just describe a little bit of the context of that and sure and, and what was going on sure yeah so um when i started my research um, I had been using Unix systems in America and at the university, and all of my computing experience was was built around that. Even though I was in Seattle, the home of Microsoft, mm -hmm. I was using anything but their stuff, and I I developed a real disdain for their computer systems, which I saw as as and I still see as toy systems. Um, and when I moved to New Zealand, um, we couldn't afford the, the the CRI couldn't afford the kind of computers that we'd been using at the university, where there were educational discounts and so on. Mm. And so the only option was this nascent 
open source thing called Linux that I had seen in the lab in Seattle a couple times. One of the interns had set it up and showed us what, what it could do, and it had really impressed me at the time. So I, I, I decided on the plane, actually, coming here, that the thing, first thing I would do would be to, um, if I was allowed, set up a, a Linux computer to do my development on because I had done all of my research, my, my software development for my master's thesis using open source software, mm. and um, I'd already was well accustomed to it at that stage. Mm. Um, but when I came to New Zealand, the, the Forest Research Institute said, source yourself a PC and here's what you're meant to be doing and get started, crack into it. So I sourced myself a PC and I installed Linux on it and they never suggested, you know, that there was never suggested I do anything else or so right. I didn't, I, I, nobody knew the different, different, nobody knew any different. And, and, um, I was able to interact with all my colleagues and so on. Um, but I did all of my work on, on Linux and, um, yeah, increasingly, um, and I'll show my ignorance. But how long had Linux been around? Um, very short. It was three okay. years old at that stage. I see. Yeah. yeah. So this is ninety four, right? Ninety four. Yeah. Yep. It was first released so in ninety one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very early days for it. Yeah. Mm. But basically, what happened was um, I did my my kind of prototype software system that I was building for the Forest Research Institute. It was on a PGSF uh, grant, which is the Public Good Science Fund. So it was all taxpayer funded. Right. And the reason I'd gotten the job was because I had this combination of skills, which was pretty obscure. And they had been trying to find someone for years to do this, to fulfill this grant that they had sitting and, you know, mm. burning a hole in their pocket. So they, they leapt at the chance to get me to come and do this work. Mm. And um, that was how I was also able to emigrate was that the job was quite specialized. Mm. Um, but I, I felt very strongly that a, all of the research materials that I was basing my work on had been made available in the public domain. Mm -hmm. And all of the software that I was using as the kind of libraries and so on for all the calculations and things like that, I had all these comp complex matrix calculations I was doing. There was a guy in Wellington who had actually developed one of the early open source libraries for a language called C++, which was what I was doing my work in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it made it really a lot easier for me to build all the matrix calculations rather than having to do it from scratch. And all of the graphical windowing libraries and so on that I used to build the user interfaces and stuff were all based on this open source system called Qt. Mm. And I was incredibly impressed with what I was able to do, and it wasn't costing the company anything. And I could, if they decided they wanted to launch my software as a product or something, they could compile it for Windows if they insisted. I could do it for them. You know, Then it was just a, a feature of the libraries that I had used. But in the meantime, I was using Linux to do all of it. Um, and uh, unfortunately, <laughs> um, I, we also had a problem. I, I ended up shifting into the University of Canterbury. Um, so I worked there for several years. Um, and uh, the, the, the person from the Forest Research Institute, who was my supervisor, um, was, was seconded to teach at Lincoln initially and then subsequently moved to the uh, School of Forestry mm. uh, at Canterbury. And so I moved there with him. Um, and we had such abysmally bad um, IT services from the main office of the Forest Research Institute um, that uh, I ended up going a little bit out on a limb and I organized to have a um, uh, dial-up internet account because in those days there weren't really any other options. We were using the university system for day-to-day -day internet access, but, but for email and so on, we had to use this dial-up Toll, toll link to the right. to the Rotorua office, uh, the main office of the Forest Research Institute, and it was costing us thousands of dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And it was we had emails three times a day, exchanges of emails, and they had tiny 200k attachment limits. If you can imagine a right, scientific yeah. research paper fitting it into 200k, <laughs> it just wasn't wasn't possible. So I ended up one one um, weekend literally taking an old 486 computer anyone can even remember those, that had been written off and it was literally being used to hold the door of our server room open to keep the, <laughs> the netware server that we had in there from overheating because it did that from time to time. Um, I actually grabbed it one Saturday morning because I was you know, young and single, <laughs> didn't have much else, uh, any other ties to, to occupy me. And I actually set up Linux on it and I turned it into a little server for the team where it dialed out automatically to a local ISP, which we were able to get a $200 a month flat rate internet account from. Um, and it meant that we could dial out and be connected 24 hours a day. Um, and it meant that people could send emails anytime they want. It might take hours for the email to, to, to be sent, mm. 
but they didn't have any attachment limits. And right. everyone was also able to have their own FTP site where they could put papers and, and give people an address that they could download it from for their collaborators overseas and elsewhere. And they, they could even have their own website, um, which was hosted on this server. And we also had, a, it, it increased our ability to do internal um, communications. We had basically a whole bunch of new capabilities that no one else in the broader organization had. So our team of 20 at the University of Canterbury had all of these tools that this Linux server made possible. And they started quietly telling their, their colleagues in the North Island office, which had 450 people or something, and was served by this uh, full-time IT team, um, all the things that they were able to do that these people in the, in the North Island office with this full-time IT team couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And they started, um, people in the North Island started agitating for having the same capabilities that their South Island people had. But of course, none of this was done. Um, there were no budget requirements. There was no, you know, l- no this line was items. The, it was uh, the old computer that was holding the door open. Exactly, <laughs> literally. And, and so there was, I, I ended up, um, becoming the de facto IT manager for the South Island office. Um, and eventually I was formally made this, the, the IT manager in addition to my research scientist um, responsibilities. But the IT team in the North Island didn't really like the fact that I was making them look bad. <laughs> and I was costing, um, you know, nothing <laughs> as far as uh, the, the IT budget was concerned. And these folks were making, I thought, really bad decisions on technology choices and so on. Mm. And the other thing that really um, uh, cemented my um, open source commitment was that the Forest Research Institute, um, I published a, or I, I wrote a, a very extensive paper describing the um, photogrammetric algorithms and software and so on that I had built. And, and I, I wrote a, a, a very complex algorithm called a bung, bundle block adjustment algorithm, which is kind of like the, well, in those days, it was sort of the holy grail of, of um, photogrammetric calculations, I guess you could say. And uh, to my amazement, despite the fact that my work was funded by a public good science fund, essentially the Forest Research Institute buried the report. No one knew that it existed. It wasn't made available in any way. If somebody had known that it existed, they could have requested it and they would have had to provide them one for the cost of printing it and posting it. But the reality is no one even knew, it, knew that it existed. And I, I wanted it to be available to anyone in New Zealand, certainly, and maybe even anyone in the world at no cost because it had been funded by the taxpayer. And that really offended me that, that they, they thought it was quote unquote IP that they needed to commercialize. And, and I thought that they actually were trying to double dip mm. and uh, that, that rubbed me the wrong way. And then the IT team in the North Island um, decided that they were going to shift to a um, windows only product for all internal communications, which I couldn't run because it, uh, there wasn't a version of it for Linux. So I quit. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought, well, because I've been able to achieve so much for so little time and so little money um, for the people in my unit, in my, in my team at the um, South Island office uh, at Canterbury, I thought, well, heck, there's a business opportunity here. I can do this for any company. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started my own company. Um, I didn't, I didn't have, I never had aspirations to, to be an entrepreneur or start my own company. I just didn't want to be subjected to anyone else's incompetence other than, than my own. I think that was my motivation for starting it mm. well that's a good enough reason <laughs> yeah yeah so you start your own it company based here in christchurch that's or, right yeah right? yeah and yeah. what what was that called it was called egressive um which i always had to say was egress with an iv rather than aggressive with an e because i, I was i was pretty full-on by many kiwis reserved reserved kiwi standards being a yank as i was you know brash yank i was um you know i had to spend all my time explaining to people what this open source Linux thing was and why it was of use in order to have any get any interest at all. So I guess I had to be a little bit self-promotional or promoting that idea for a long time before mm. the market even knew what I was talking about. Mm, sure. Nowadays, it's not a problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you did that for a number of years, is that right? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I, I started out of my house and, and ended up slowly building a team um, over, over 14 years. Um, we went from one to, I think at our height, we were 12, a team of 12. Uh, and then in 2015, we sold, uh, we were acquired by Catalyst IT, who is uh, probably New Zealand, probably even the Southern Hemisphere's largest open source company. Um, and I should clarify, I, I always try to use the term free and open source rather than mm. just open source for reasons that are probably 
you know beyond the scope yeah. of the conversation but no that's okay that's where i wanted to go actually because okay. I, I i read some stuff on because you've got a great website oh, um, thanks. so we'll put that in the show links so people okay. can find to it yeah. find it easily um but i noticed you had a discussion there about free and open source yeah as opposed to open source yeah um can you just explain a little bit about the difference between that or how you sure how you view it sure well um most people who have any IT leaning have heard of open source software, yeah. um, but most of them, many of them won't recognize or realize that the concept of quote-unquote free software uh, existed long before open source software did. And free software was the idea, it, it was sort of a philosophical concept um, that had to do with the rationale that um, software could be truly free in the sense of freedom as yeah. opposed to in the sense of zero cost, gratis. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a free has the un, un, unfortunate uh, connotation or unfortunate property in English of having two connotations that are widely used, um, right. gratis and libre, you know, liberty and, and free and, and zero cost. Sure. Um, yeah. And this use of the word free focuses really on the, the libre aspect of it, not the gratis aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the idea is that Software, because it has this increasingly pervasive role in our in our lives and in our culture, um, actually has a huge bearing on our sense of freedom. And um, in order for us to feel empowered and and able to act in a world where software is is everywhere, um, if we as a user of the software haven't got the ability to also change the software and make it and understand how it works. Mm -hmm then we are effectively disempowered. It's, it, it's a, it's a um, it creates fertile ground for autocracy and, and totalitarianism and things like that, mm. which basically is what we're seeing now. We're seeing the, the starting, you know, the, the initiation of that by various corporate in, interests and, and also some governments. Mm. But the idea that, that if, if you as a user of your software don't have the ability to understand how it works, um, I mean, the, the common analogy is imagine that the car, the, the boot, of, sorry, the, the bonnet of your car was welded shut. And the only way that you could have anything changed in your car was going to some improved person who has a monopoly on, on that particular type of car, who is the only one who's allowed to open it and, and make any changes to it. And then they'll only make the changes that they deem are in their best interest, not necessarily the ones that are in your best interest. Mm. Um, you know, that... Software has created an entirely unprecedented um, comp, uh, concept in our in our lives. This idea of proprietary, uh, totally proprietary information—that is, the, where the proprietariness is enforced by um, impenetrable technology. Essentially, mm. there's never been a time in our human history where, you know, maybe the alchemists tried to be as secretive or as um, you know proprietary about their knowledge, but we all know where that got them. Mm. Um, up until up until software emerged there was this idea that you could basically fix your own stuff if it broke it was yours you could do whatever you wanted with it nowadays that's not the case anymore so we've we've got some interesting concepts that have emerged in my lifetime this concept of artificial scarcity which you may have come across mm. the idea that something that's digital digital and is inherently abundant because it can be copied at zero incremental cost nonetheless you you can be required to pay huge amounts of money for it in order to use it and the, the scarcity of it is enforced by for example an activation key and then it's also that's backed up by government um government uh enforcement of proprietary monopolies um which other people refer to as ip but mm. i would i call them i call them intellectual monopolies that are government granted mm. because that's what they are they're not actually a property yeah. in the same sense as real property they're not physical property where if i give you something you have it and i no longer do in, in, in the digital world, I give you a copy of what I have already, what I still retain, and that's not the same thing as mm. as, as physical property. Mm. So just going back to your own research in your mm -hmm. own life to draw the picture here, mm -hmm. the things that you were doing in your research, you know that phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants, Absolutely. sort of, yeah. if those people hadn't done what they did in the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. and they hadn't made available what they'd done freely, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't have been able to make breakthroughs that you made Absolutely. Um, because if they had taken what they'd done and put it in a locked box mm -hmm. and said, you can, you can have a look at it, but you have to pay me, mm -hmm. um, then it wouldn't have been possible. That's, that's, that's certainly really, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's part yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, mean, I guess it was, it, it was far more, I mean, that was, that was certainly core to it, but then there was all of this, um, 
this huge amount of um, infrastructure that I was able to leverage to build the software that I was building. Mm. And it was all provided by, it was all open source and provided by people who had built it for their own requirements typically. And in some cases had built businesses around it. Like this this thing that I used for the graphical interface is this QT library, for mm. example. Mm. You probably use it if you ever use Skype. That's the basis of Skype, okay. for example. Yeah. And, and there's lots of other widely used proprietary products that are built on the QT libraries today. Mm, mm. Um, but I was using a very early version of it. And interestingly, the company, that was a Norwegian company that started it, they made it available as open source software for open source development. And if you were using it for proprietary development, then you paid a license for it. Mm. And so um, essentially they pioneered the idea of dual dual licensing, which I think actually is quite quite clever. So they basically say, if you're gonna be making your software free software, then we'll make ours free software. Right. And if you don't, then you, you need to pay for it. Right, I and, see. And so they kind of, they used the copyright, um, the copyright uh, based licenses to their, to their advantage to retain openness rather than to impose closeness, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. So in your ideal situation, I guess, you know, advancing in the future, mm -hmm. um, is, is the point that um, software can be used for the benefit of humankind, you know, a bigger mm. picture rather than the benefit of a particular corporation which is returning profits to its shareholder? Yeah. Is that sort of the... Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've come to the very um, considered conclusion that the corporate model that we have in the world today is fundamentally broken and it needs to end. It's just not doesn't it doesn't create incentives that align with the incentives or the, the interests of people um, it, it it creates an us and them scenario that is untenable in my opinion and I mean I go I go so far and, and, and a lot of people see me as a bit of a firebrand I suppose but for saying this but I think um, proprietary software creates an inherent divide between those who have the code and those who don't and those who have the code um, essentially have the ability to exploit those who don't and feel they need it so proprietary software wouldn't be much of an issue if, if it wasn't for the fact that in many cases proprietary software is an inherent monopoly. Mm -hmm. So if somebody produces, say, Windows, only one company can sell that. Only one company can service it. Only one company can confer mm -hmm. partnership status on another company, for example. Mm -hmm. And if you don't buy it from them, you don't buy it from anybody. You don't get it. Mm -hmm. And if everybody in the world uses a particular piece of software, then everybody in the world has to use a particular piece of software that's proprietary. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you get companies that are bigger than countries. You know, some of these mega corporations like Google and Apple and Microsoft and Amazon, they are bigger than most countries in terms of their, uh, you know, mm. financial, um, in, in terms of their, their GDP. Mm. <laughs> and that is terrifying. We've yeah. never had a situation like that in the history of the world. Yeah. Yeah, one of the earlier podcasts I did was with a PhD student, Franca Bulo, and we talked mm. about transnational sovereignty mm. and the fact that there's these new entities which are emerging relatively recently mm -hmm. that actually, you know, it transcends the traditional nation state. Yeah. And it's names like you've just mentioned, you know, mm. that that they're actually across the globe. And is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Mm. What does it mean for the future? I think it's future? a horrible thing. <laughs> it's one of the reasons that I'm so staunchly opposed to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Right. And, uh, and anything similar. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm quite livid that our government doesn't recognize this. And that, uh, you know, to my, to my mind, this is an issue of existential importance. Mm. Because corporations of that size and of that scale have a tendency to be psychotic certifiably um, they have only one incentive which is to maximize shareholder value mm -hmm. and they if they can do that if they can increase their profits by acting illegally and just bearing the maybe if there's a financial penalty if they even get caught they see that as a good investment mm -hmm. and the thing is that I see multinational corporations public listed multinational corporations as a race to the ethical bottom mm -hmm. and they're essentially I mean I see things like the TPPA as being a um, essentially a, a corporate power grab designed to make democratic governments look ineffectual and weak. Mm. Um, and, and I guess the, uh, the alternative would be corporate governance or co corporatocracy. Mm. And to my mind, that would be total dystopia. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, we're touching on many topics here. Can we, <laughs> can we come back to the open source? Thing? Sure. <laughs> just with, um, I'm just thinking about analogies cause I find it's helpful for my own mm. brain to think about, 
uh, pictures that mm-hmm. are similar. And I'm just thinking about drug companies who develop something that can actually um, make life better for people. Mm-hmm. And then they roll it out and there's a high cost to access this medicine yep. or something that would actually cure whatever the disease is in, in mm-hmm. many places in the world. Um, is it kind of similar to that? Or? It's very similar to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but um, recently there have been some interesting uh uh, analysis that says essentially there's no money in curing disease. Right. Um, the the better things are to to actually get people hooked on a drug that they need to take for the le- the rest of their lives to achieve quality of life. Mm. Uh, ideally, more and more drugs over time, mm. um, because that provides the best return on investment. Right. And so, in fact, it's actually not in in a drug company's best interest to come up with cures. It's in their best interest to come up with treatments that require lifetime mm. sub- subscriptions, essentially. Yeah. Software is the same. If you think about it, why would you build a computer system that requires you to install antivirus on it? It's like somebody building a car that requires you to buy a contract to have somebody follow you around with a, a, a wrench to and, and, and spare lug nuts to put the wheels back on the car when they accidentally fall off periodically, which mm. they always do. Mm. Um, you know, that's effectively the, the analogy that I, that I mm. think uh, most closely um, describes the situation. Mm. Um, it's interesting that um, systems like Linux don't actually have viruses, never mm. did. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's just, um, it's when the, the, in, the, the, when the motivations for building the software um, diverge from the interests of the people using the software. Mm-hmm. And that typically, typically software or, well, Typically, um, when a corporation is young, it's trying to break into a marketplace. And the way that it does that is by aligning itself with the interests of its customers. Mm-hmm. The problem is that once a corporation becomes mature, and typically all corporations, despite the fact that they always talk about um, being market, market capitalists and you know, loving the free market, actually their whole purpose in existence is to create a monopoly, which is exactly the opposite of that. That's a complete distortion of the market. And... Um, as soon as software achieves a market dominance, its um, incentives become diametrically opposed to those of its customers. Mm. And it actually has to spend all of its time working out how to look like it's being kind to its customers while at the same time, for example, making them think that the software they currently have of theirs is bad and that they should upgrade to the next version because it's going to be better. Mm. And the thing that amazes me is that people keep on doing it. Mm that they don't see that they're completely being exploited like a cow being milked. Mm. You know, it's just amazing to me. Mm. But anyway. Or to draw another picture, you know, like the latest phone comes out, you, mm. you need to buy the new version of the phone because it's much better than the one that was released yeah. 12 months ago. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's an example of planned obsolescence, right? You've yeah. got, you've got um, things that are designed to uh, um, f- force you to come back and buy more. Mm. And even, you know... To my mind, that's one of the most risable things about about the modern commercial environment and the mm. corporate environment is this concept of planned obsolescence. Mm. I mean, the artificial scarcity is a similar concept. Mm. You know, there are things that were created that are what what are referred to by a guy called Benjamin Mako Hill, who's a, a longtime free software advocate. He he describes them as anti features. Right. You know, there's lots of aspects of of computer systems, of software, of printers, of digital cameras, all kinds of. Um, uh, electronic um, commodity de- commodity devices, um, consumer devices. I'm trying to say uh, that have features built into them that you pay for. That you've you're when you buy them, you've paid for those things. But the whole purpose of those is to actually work against you as the owner of that consumer device. Right. Um, so, for example, when you have a you know you have a inkjet printer. And you go to in, replace the ink in it, which costs incredible amounts because the printer mm-hmm. costs nothing, right? Yes, the, that's right. It's the big, the Schick razor experience of that. Yeah. The Schick <laughs> razor. I mean, to my mind, that's one of the great that's one of the great um, frauds of of the internet age is is printer and inks, printers and ink. But the idea is that you you replace it with an off market, and not the branded version of the ink. There's nothing wrong with the ink, but sometimes the printer will have a special algorithm in its circuitry that says. If this printer cartridge, this ink cartridge, doesn't report the right ID number, that is one that we've registered as part of our, you know, official purchase from HP or from Brother or from mm-hmm. Kodak or whatever, um, that that it will actually print at a lower resolution. Hmm. Wow! And it will print um, slower, or it will print. Th- there are all kinds of things like the, 
you know, with, with digital cameras and cell phones, the, the, um, the battery uh, preservation technologies will, won't switch on if it's not a, a, a registered battery, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. The, you know, the, if you buy something that's less expensive because it wasn't made by the original company, that's how they ensure that um, they get their return on investment by selling, by, by um, using the purchase of the printer as a, lo- a loss leader or the purchase of the phone as a loss leader. All the peripherals are so expensive that, that they make that's the reason. Yeah. way more back. Now, we started the conversation, I introduced you as the open source technologist mm-hmm. at the Open Education Resource Foundation. Can you just tell us a little <laughs> bit about that? And how, because also sure. I think everybody's on a journey, we're all learning in life. You know, mm-hmm. some people may be really stimulated and want to find out more. Is this something that that can help with? Or? Absolutely, yeah. actually. So, okay, I, um, when I, when I, uh, I guess finished with Catalyst, who I worked for after they acquired my company. Mm. Um, I was I was a bit fed up with the fact that as a as an engineer by inclination and, and training, mm. I was mostly doing managerial type things and high level consulting type things, and I wasn't really keeping my hands mm. on the tools, so to speak. Mm. Um, and I actually found this opportunity to work with this um, very small charitable foundation that's actually based in Dunedin of all places um, but with a global um, a global ambition um, called the Open Education Resource Foundation and they brought me on as um, their third employee (laughs) Um, and I was joining their other technologist who is one of the co-founders of the company of the foundation rather and the the founder is a South African who's moved to New Zealand um, called Wayne McIntosh and um, he is a uh, great advocate on uh, well all things open, but his his main areas of of expertise are in, in open educational resources, which are essentially the open source equivalent for curriculum materials as opposed to software. Hmm. Um, and um, his ambition is to create a mechanism whereby anyone anywhere in the world can study at a tertiary level any field that interests them right and get an accredited degree for doing so as opposed to like a you know a, a coursera a course completion certificate or a Khan academy course completion certificate which don't have any academic rigor necessarily mm. um, applied to them or credibility um, and we're also um, we also are involved in things like um, you know open badging and some of the new interesting technologies for for kind of managing curric- um, transcript type information okay. but but the idea is that we have a the, the foundation is the um, coordinator of a global partnership or a network it's called called the OER Universitas so the OERU okay um, so OERU.org is the is the main um, organization that is the combination of our foundation and 30ish maybe a few more than 30 um, tertiary institution partners around the world mm-hmm. and uh, what what the tertiary institutions do is they join because um in many cases it's for their public good component of their mission mm-hmm. but also they see it as an opportunity to look into a whole new business model potentially for their institution mm-hmm. and what we're doing is we're taking each of them contributes two of their courses and converts them all into open educational resources and the definition of an open educational resource is um learning materials that is the 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 words of the curriculum the description of the curriculum all of the kind of background resource materials the equivalent of the textbooks that you would use um videos and diagrams and pictures and um, audio files and all those kinds of things are all incorporated into these open educational resources that make up the course materials that say you would you would be given access to if you attended a university you would you would access Mm -hmm. that university's course materials in this case they're giving them to the um, essentially to the commons, the educational commons as these open educational resources, um, and they're all licensed under these Creative Commons licenses, which um, guarantee certain rights to anyone who wants to use them, and it's they're a very well defined um, legal basis for doing so. Um, so unlike regular copyright, they're not where it's all rights reserved. Creative Commons copyrights. Creative Commons licenses use the, the, the laws of copyright or they use the mechanism of copyright to um, specify which rights specifically are allowed. And for example, um, most of our materials are licensed either under what's called CC BY or Creative Commons BY Attribution or CC BY SA, which is Creative Commons BY Attribution Share Alike. 
And so the first one, the first one, the CC BY license basically says, if someone takes our materials, they can use them, they can incorporate them into their own documents, they could pull our textbook off of our website or, or our course materials off of our website, and they could publish them as a book if they chose to, or they could offer them at their own university mm. at no cost. All they have to do, the only obligation on them is to cite where they receive them. They can even change them. They can, they can modify them to their heart's content. Um, the other one that I mentioned, the, the share alike version of that license, basically just says they can do all those same things and they can provide a citation back to us, but they have to make the results of their changes to whatever we've produced available under the same terms. Mm, I see. So it has an inherited aspect. Yeah. Um, well, one yeah. of the fun things is going to be to work with you to get the wording right for this episode. Because yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you'd emailed me before, let's let's see if we can get some wording around it. And I'm happy to do that. Because I think it's going to be a fun learning process for me as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a feeling that we need to do a part two at some point. Okay. Because <laughs> there's so many <laughs> topics that we've touched on. Um, okay. That, well, and great. many of them, you know, we could have gone deeper, particularly around this sort of stuff but what we'll do is um put links to everything that you've mentioned sure. and we'll just put it in the show notes so people can um find out more and and ways that they can reach out to you mm -hmm. um and find out more if they're interested so i just want to say thanks for coming on the show it's been really interesting we've gone from multilingual parent to <laughs> <laughs> to um you know taking photos from helicopters and then talking about this free and what does free mean and open yeah. source. And so it's been a really fascinating conversation. It's one of the reasons I love this podcast is I never quite know what we're going to talk about. But this has been a really rich one. So oh, thanks, thanks for your time. I appreciate appreciate having the chat. Right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dave. As is often the case with this podcast, we ended up touching on a number of different areas and topics that I never anticipated. For example, I found it was fascinating to hear about his childhood and his father's background and growing up in a Quaker home. And of course, that topic of open source software and who owns software that's created was a fascinating one. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you don't want to miss out on upcoming episodes, then just hit subscribe. Until next time.